Well, good morning. My name is Dave Furman, and I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer. It's a joy to be worshiping God together with you today. If you have brought a Bible with you, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. So we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We had a two-week break from the sermon series, but we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous words of Jesus. This is Jesus' most famous sermon. We see it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we've been in the first section of the sermon, kind of an introductory portion of the sermon, often called the Beatitudes or the Blessings. And there are eight Beatitudes, eight blessings, and we've talked about this before, but the Beatitudes are not describing eight different types of people, as if some are poor in spirit, some are peacemakers. It's not talking about eight different kinds of people. Jesus is talking about eight different characteristics of one kind of person, a Christian, And living according to the Beatitudes is the good life. It's the blessed life. To be blessed is to be approved by God and to enjoy a relationship with him. And so today we're going to finish up the Beatitudes with the last two. And I actually have three points in my sermon today. So surprise, I know it's been a while since I've had three points in a sermon, but I thought we'd give it a try today because that seems to be what the text itself does. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline this morning. Number one, peacemaking is the ultimate work of the Christian. Number two, peacemaking will lead to persecution. And number three, persecution is cause for rejoicing. Peacemaking is the ultimate work of the Christian. It will lead to persecution and it is cause for rejoicing. Well, before we get in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would be with us today as we look at your word. Father, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see and to savor Christ. We pray that our lives would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, number one, peacemaking is the ultimate work of the Christian. Now look at chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now it's interesting because the idea of peace in the scriptures doesn't normally refer to a freedom from anxiety. But what it actually normally refers to is the peace, the absence, the freedom of hostility, the freedom from hostility between two parties. And that's what it means here. And combined with the second half of the word makers, it shows us that this person isn't passive, but is actively putting an end to hostility. Now, here's a good definition for peacemakers that I found. A peacemaker enters into the middle of warring parties for the purpose of reconciliation. Now, what that means is that a peacemaker isn't just someone who's easygoing, someone who's carefree, someone who's just laid back, kind of just lets things happen. You know, someone who's merely tolerant, who doesn't ruffle anyone's feathers. Now, a peacemaker is not a person who wants peace at any price, a person who avoids conflict. Now, a peacemaker is not a conflict avoider, but a conflict ender. 
or rather than avoiding tension, they run to the tension in order to resolve it and to bring true peace. And this might seem backwards to us in our minds, and it might be hard for many of us personally or culturally. You know, what do we do when we see conflict? Well, for many of us, as soon as we feel conflict around us or see conflict, we run with the speed of Usain Bolt in the other direction. We run with the determination of the prophet Jonah and we leave kind of the conflict of Nineveh to run, to sail to the safe harbor of Tarshish. We want to have nothing to do with conflict. We want to get away. But see, there's something different about the peacemaker, He knows that running from conflict will only make things worse. Instead, a peacemaker is a minister of reconciliation. In that sense, a peacemaker is a fighter. She fights for peace. She brings up hard topics in order to resolve conflict. And this is what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus didn't avoid confronting the darkest, most horrific problem that mankind had ever faced, our sin against the holy God. No, from eternity past, the Son of God set his face toward the cross in order to bring us real and forever peace. Real peacemaking, it's, it's going to look rough at first. It'll look rough at first before the peace comes. It'll look like you're taking up your cross, a storm before the calm, the anguish of death before the joy of resurrection. Well, there are two main ways Christians are to work at keeping peace, at making peace. The first is to be a peacemaker among people. We refrain from gossip and slander. We refrain from rumors. And not only do we refrain from those things, we actually seek to put a stop to slander. We speak up against it. We let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth except such a word as is used for edification according to the need of the moment so that it might bring peace to those we're talking with. You know, we bring peace in our own households. And why is it so often that the greatest strife is the strife under our own roofs with the people we're closest to? No, we must start in our peacemaking by being forgiving and being patient to those we live with, friends, family. Well, peacemaking means we're quick to apologize. We humble ourselves. We ask for forgiveness when necessary. Friends, have you sought the peace of Christ's church? Are you actively working towards unity with others? Or do you make assumptions about other people that leads to disunity and bitterness? Isn't this how it works? We make assumptions that about other people that leads to disunity. Bitterness starts creeping into our hearts. We don't even know if it's true, but we make those assumptions. Well, I read a story this past week of a pastor of a church who increased the length of their worship service by 15 minutes. Now, I know, that's a scandal, isn't it? 15 whole minutes. I don't know what he was thinking. Now, in reality, most people in the church were fine with it. In fact, no one complained. But the pastor started getting bitter with one particular church member. And the pastor, he wrote, Church used to end at 10.30, now it goes to 10.45. And each week, one man near the back, he stands up at precisely 10.30. He straightens his jacket, he straightens his pants, and he just walks out. 
Sometimes this pastor is speaking that he could feel that man's displeasure at the church service. And while he was preaching, he could feel just the anger and the the bitterness within him while he was preaching as he watched this weekly display. Well, then one week, the pastor actually changed the order of worship and he preached the sermon first. Well, the man still left at 1030. But later that day, his wife called the pastor and he said, Pastor, She said, you can't imagine how happy my husband was today. You see, he has to report to work at 1045 on Sundays. And he waits until the last possible minute each week, but it grieves him that he can never stay to the end of your message. Well, today he heard your whole sermon and he is so pleased. I just had to tell you. Oops. I mean, friends, guessing other people's motives is a prime way to prevent peace. Because what happens when we do this? Inevitably, we tend to make the most self-damaging guesses to other people's motives, don't we? Of course, for our own motives, we're pretty quick to assume the best of our own motives. But of other people, because of our sin, we tend to think the worst. A peacemaker works hard to pursue people with love, never retreating in bitterness, Writer Tim Challies wrote this week that it's sinful to assume bad motives, but it's also sinful to not assume good motives. Now, he adds, it's only good to make assumptions if that assumption is that a person's motives are actually good. They may not be, but this is one of the ways we keep peace. We assume good motives. We speak highly of others. We don't let bitterness creep into our hearts. We keep the peace. That's our role as Christians. Ephesians 4, Christian, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace. Romans 14, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Of course, sometimes it's not always up to us. We may do whatever we can to keep the peace, but then the other party won't let us. Well, Romans 12 says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. A peacemaker works for peace among people. But I think even more in view in this verse is that being a peacemaker means seeking to make peace between God and men. The biggest need in the world is for men, women, and children from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to have peace with God. That's what we were created for. And if that's the case, then the supreme act, the supreme action of peacemaking then is to proclaim the gospel. Well, sharing the gospel and evangelism then is the most loving thing we can do for our friends and neighbors because it seeks to bring them peace with God. I was talking with my daughter, Nora, about this, about these things yesterday morning, and she said, Dad, you can never have too many friends when you're sharing the gospel with them. And I think that's right. It's true, isn't it? Now, Redeemer Church, are you holding out the gospel to your friends? I love it that we have 54 new members. It was, a, it was great to see them all lined up here in front of the platform earlier. If that's you, welcome to the family. We're, we're gra- glad to be together. Well, one of the things as church family, as members, one of the things we've covenanted, we've covenanted together to do is to do just this. It's that by a pure and loving example, we will seek the salvation of our family and friends. That's a promise. That's a commitment that we have made to one another. And we do that because that's what a Christian looks like. We share the gospel. Friends, are there non-believers in your life that you're praying for? 
Are you taking opportunities to talk to people about Jesus as you go about your daily life? Now, peacemaking is our ministry, and when we do this, we look something like our God. Isn't that a wonderful promise? You see that in the second half of the verse, peacemakers will be called sons of God. Notice it doesn't say children of God. That's actually significant because a son in Scripture bears the meaning of one who has the character of the Father. Jesus is saying a peacemaker is reflecting God and his wonderful peacemaking character. There's something God-like to bringing peace to people. You look more and more like God when you share the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a sweet thought. What a wonderful thought this morning. And this is true because Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, the Prince of Peace. Well, maybe you're here this morning and peace is what you're looking for. Peace is what you need. Your life is a mess and deep down you know this is true, that you need a peace that will calm your heart. My friend, you need to know that the only way to find that peace is to have peace with God Almighty. If you're here today and you don't follow Jesus, Jesus is God in the flesh. He came from heaven down to earth to bring peace between God and man. We all need this because all of us were born and have lived as enemies of God. There's no one who's indifferent to God. You may, you may be sitting here and saying, Pastor, I don't hate God. I'm not hostile toward God. But you see, the Bible says that all of us, we were born and continue to live as enemies of God. Because of his consuming holiness and the overwhelming love of our creator God, to be indifferent toward this almighty God who made you for his glory is not a neutral stance. Our alleged indifference to God is actually a failure to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Friends, loving anything or anyone more than God is treason and deserves death. There's no way we could pay that infinite debt against an infinite God back ourselves. We need peace between us and God. But there's hope, and Colossians 1 tells us that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Well, Jesus is the only way to peace with God. And there's nothing cheap about this peacemaking. Jesus, seeing the gravity of our sin, didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't ignore it. He didn't turn and walk away. He didn't run in the other direction. Well, when his peacemaking would cost his life, he turned toward the tension of Jerusalem and he marched willingly to his death and bought us peace with God through his outstretched arms. Well, Jesus is the supreme peacemaker. And if you don't know this peace, friend, this is what you need. This is what you're looking for. Turn to Christ. See that the Son of God is lifted up on the cross to pay for your sins, every single one of your sins, and trust in him to save you. And he will transform you. This is what's encouraging. He will give you everlasting life, and he will transform you from being his enemy to being a peacemaker, to being one who will, will then bring peace to others. Peacemaking is the ultimate work of the Christian. That's point number one. Well, point number two, a second thing we see in our text about peacemaking is that peacemaking leads to persecution. Peacemaking will lead to persecution. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When we do good for the people of this world, it doesn't mean we can expect to receive good back from them. There will be persecution, but, and this is amazing, it will be a blessing. Did you notice that Jesus says it twice, both in verse 10 and verse 11? One Puritan believed that the reason Christ repeated himself was because the statement was so stunning. I mean, what did you say, Jesus? Can you say it again? I'm not sure I heard you right the first time. It sounded like you said that persecution will bring blessing, that those who are persecuted will be blessed. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I mean, it's a, it's a divine paradox. It's a mystery. If you were there, there at the bottom of the, the mountain, listening to Jesus preach the sermon for the first time, and you heard these words, persecution and blessing together, it would have been shocking for you because you were expecting this great military Messiah, this great strong Savior who was going to lead you into great strength and great glory. And here, Jesus is saying, no, actually... The peacemaker is persecuted, and blessed are those who are persecuted. This sounds strange to our modern ears. Persecution, blessing together. Well, to persecute means to pursue to an end, to hunt down. It means to say false things about someone. It's a character assassination. It may involve physical pain or even loss of life. I mean, notice, though, what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted, period. It doesn't stop there. He's not saying you're persecuted at work when you get confronted for being a bad employee. It doesn't say you're persecuted when you're confronted for, for doing any number of things. I mean, you can imagine at work, maybe you feel like you're being persecuted by your boss. You're there, and you're reading your Bible at work when your boss needs you to be working. And your boss gets upset, and in your heart you cry out, persecution! I'm being persecuted for reading my Bible. No, you're being persecuted because you're being unfaithful to your job. That's not the persecution Jesus is talking about. Instead of work, you should meditate on the word of God that you've memorized, and you should work harder than everyone else as unto the Lord Jesus Christ because you serve Jesus. You should be a blessing to others. You should glorify others. You should be one who points to Christ by the quality of your work. Now, that Christian who says he's being persecuted just isn't doing his job. He's bringing a bad name to Jesus. Jesus is not talking about being persecuted for being lazy or being obnoxious or being rude. It's not what he's talking about. Instead, you could be persecuted for righteousness' sake, is what he says here. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That means for Christ's sake. It means to be persecuted for being like the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus has in view here. And so you could be persecuted for righteousness' sake by taking a stand at work. Maybe you don't cut corners because you're working for King Jesus. And the other employees are persecuting you because you're making them look bad by working so hard. Or your boss is persecuting you because you won't cheat. You know, you won't lie. He's, or she has asked you to falsify a report or to do something illegal, and you just won't do it. Now, Christians are often misunderstood. People don't understand why we won't just do it to get ahead in the world. But see, we're not living for this world. We're living for another world, and so we can make those kinds of decisions. 
Or perhaps your family is persecuting you. You've come to faith in Christ. Your family has disowned you. Maybe you're married to a non-believer and that has caused all kinds of complications, divorce, difficult custody battles, maybe just plain heartache. You've made a decision to follow Jesus at home and it has cost you. Oh, friend, if that's you, we are so sad for you. That's not easy. Persecution's not easy. Well, the reality is it'll be different for each of us. But Jesus says true peacemakers will be persecuted. It's the way of the cross. And fellow Christian, expect persecution. Expect times to be hard and check your heart. How do you feel that God's appointed means for the spread of his kingdom is to come through suffering? I mean, can you say God is good even when following Jesus means taking up your cross every day at work, every day at school, every day at your university campus, every day in your own home? Let me just, let me just stop for a minute. I want, I want to talk to the teenagers that are, that are here in the room. Those of you who are part of Regeneration. I just want to say that I was thrilled last Friday at our baptism service. It was wonderful to see four of you get baptized, to see four of you make a public confession of your faith. I love seeing Anna and Irene and Gideon and Hazel stand up there and proclaim their faith in Jesus. I, I love seeing other, other teenagers like Artis here and Candace join our church as members. I want you to know, Redeemer Church, God is doing something among our teenagers and youth in this church. It's, it's amazing. They're coming to faith. They're taking stands for Christ. They're, they're growing in their faith. They're studying God's word. God is calling them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And as a pastor, I am thrilled with what he's doing among our teens. But I, but I want to say something to you, if that's you, to, to Regeneration, to Jumpstarter, if there's any Redeemer kids in here, I want you to know something. I want you to know that if you follow Christ, it won't be easy. If you follow Christ faithfully, you need to know this now in your youth. If you follow Christ faithfully, you will be persecuted. And I have to say that because what I don't want to do ever on a Friday is I don't ever want to stand up here as your pastor and say, come to know Jesus, repent and believe. Come follow Christ because it'll be easy. Come follow Christ and you'll have the time of your life always. Come and follow Christ and you'll get stuff. I don't want to lie to you. Those are lies of the devil. Those are lies of the evil one. The gospel is not the message of come to Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But not only is it not that, it's actually the opposite of that. Kids, teens, Redeemer Church, you have to know that being a Christian means you will suffer. To take up your cross and to follow him. If you follow Christ, it won't be easy. Now let me just say that again in case you missed it. If you follow Christ, it won't be easy. The disciple's not above his master. Jesus suffered, and so we too must suffer. I mean, you see how these verses totally destroy the so-called prosperity gospel? It's not come to Jesus and get stuff. It's come to Jesus and follow his life and follow his death. And since these Beatitudes describe a Christian disciple, then we know that to be despised, rejected, slandered, and persecuted is the normal mark of a Christian. 
If you try and live publicly as a Christian, starting Bible studies, sharing the gospel regularly, having uncomfortable conversations, showing compassion to the weak, breaking off a dating relationship that doesn't honor Christ, leaving a high-paying job to follow Jesus. If you do these things, the world's going to laugh at you. The world's not going to understand why you're doing them. You may get mocked. You may even get fired. You may take personal loss. You may get hurt. You may be physically hurt for your faith. You may even be called to lose your life. That's a myth that Christianity will necessarily deliver you from suffering. It's the other way around. As we become more like Jesus, we should be expected to suffer like Jesus. As I was preparing the sermon, I was having my devotional time and going through my Bible reading plan in a year. The very morning I was starting to write the sermon, my Bible plan had me reading Acts chapter 14 as, as part of the reading for the day. And in Acts chapter 14, you have the Apostle Paul on a missionary journey. He's taking the gospel to town and, and city, and he's in Lystra. He's being a, a peacemaker by sharing the gospel, but they stone him, and they drag him out of the city. They think he's dead. But the next day he got up, and he entered back into the city, and then he went to the next city, and he preached there. And, and I love this because after that missionary journey, he goes back to his home church in Antioch. This is his sending church that sent he and Barnabas out. And he's there, and he reports to them that God had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. I mean, he didn't say, well, it was tough. I got stoned and arrested. He actually says, open door. It was wide open. A Redeemer Church, we don't shy away from hard things and hard places and hard people. Paul was stoned, and he says, look at that. I mean, open door. Wow, praise God, an open door to the gospel. No, I mean, at that point, if I'm being stoned and dragged away, left for death, I think I might be tempted to think, well, that just about closes the door. I think that door is shut. I think I'm going to go walk and find another door that might be opened with God. But not Paul. He saw it rightly. He kept preaching. He went back. Now, we don't force persecution. We, we don't stage it. But we don't run from it either. Persecution is God's plan for his peacemaking people. We don't only go peacemaking to easy places. We don't only share the gospel with easy people. My favorite example of this is John G. Patton. He's such a hero of our family that our youngest son, Troy's middle name is actually Patton. And he left with his new bride to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific decades and decades ago. And less than two decades earlier, though, the, the first missionaries who landed there in the New Hebrides to take the gospel were actually killed by cannibals and, and, and were eaten. And now, a couple decades later, John G. Patton senses this calling. And all the Christians there in Scotland, the Christians there in the church were telling him, don't go. You know, don't go. Your ministry is so successful here in Glasgow. Uh, look, people are coming to faith, and it's dangerous out there. In fact, one dear Christian cried out. He said, the cannibals, if you go the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Well, to that, Patton replied with these words. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. 
and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's a bold brother right there, isn't it? And he went. He went to the cannibals. And it wasn't easy. By the time he was 38, his wife and child and whole missionary team had died. Many native teachers had died. There were threats for his life. Their house would often be surrounded by angry natives. There was no unwinding. He slept with his clothes on to be ready to run at a moment's notice. At one point, with hundreds of natives hunting to kill him, he actually hid in the top and within the thickness of a large tree for a whole day, even at night, slept there, listening to all the guns, shots going off in the vicinity. And he wrote of that experience and said, I felt there among the branches, safe as in the arms of Jesus, alone, yet not alone. And over the next 15 years, John G. Patton saw the entire island of Aniwa turn to Christ. Years later, he wrote, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. Thousands and thousands of cannibals on that island bow down at the feet of Jesus. And on the last day, his wife, his child, his co-workers will rise in the resurrection among many, many Aniwan saints. Friend, God might not call you to go reach cannibals, but he might. He might. Maybe God brought you to Dubai to send you out from Dubai. Maybe instead of moving further to the west and having your eyes on a better destination, perhaps we should take the gospel among the least reached. Perhaps we should move somewhere else to proclaim this good news that we've learned or grown in here in Dubai. Or instead of following our current dreams, maybe we should begin to pray that maybe God would have us go back to our home country to start a work like this one. Or maybe God is simply calling you to be bold right here, right now. Maybe that's the message for you this morning. Maybe you need to have that uncomfortable gospel conversation with your friend this week. You know you need to do it, but you've been so nervous, so timid. Maybe you need to start a Bible study among your workmates or classmates. Maybe you need to leave a high-paying, busy job to start following Christ like you know you should. Or maybe you're a university student, and you, you know you need to take a stand on your university campus. Maybe that's what God's asking you to do, to share with that least-reached classmate of yours. No, friend, persecution is not our greatest concern. It's actually a bigger issue when a person or church faces so little persecution. You, know, you can laugh at what the world laughs at. You can look forward to what the world looks forward to. You can have faith in the same things the world has faith in. Or you can just spend all your free time with Christians and don't engage with non-believers. If you follow those formulas, maybe it can be a smooth life for you. Well, one example of this was given in the satirical book written decades ago called The Gospel Blimp. 
See, the believers in this town, they come up with their strategy for evangelism, and they build a blimp. If you don't know what a blimp is, it's something between a hot air balloon and an airplane. And here is their strategy for evangelism. Build a big blimp and tie behind it a big banner. And on the banner, put words like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And they were going to just fly that around. And so they did. They started flying the blimp all around the city, just over and over and over again, so people can see that message and they can they hope their lives will be changed. Um, but see, no one was ever converted by this. No one is ever changed by this. But the Christians, they get, get so excited that they spend all their time on the blimp. So they're painting it and repainting it. They got nice calligraphy on the banner. They attach a good sound system so they can announce the gospel. They're doing all these things. But none of them are really building relationships with non-believers. But the trouble comes when one guy, he kind of steps down from the blimp committee and he stops hanging out at the blimp, kind of getting it ready, and he's not there anymore. He builds a relationship with a non-Christian instead, and they go to the lake together, and and they have lunches together, and they spend time together, and that man comes to faith. But the only thing the blimp committee can think about is how concerning it is that that man is no longer helping with the blimp. But could it be, friend, that we're not facing persecution because we're not sharing about Jesus? Maybe you live like Redeemer Church is a gospel blimp. You spend all your time with fellow Christians that you don't have any non-Christian friends. Maybe you feel insecure to share the gospel yourself. But let me encourage you. It's been said that the best gospel presentation is the one you actually share. If Jesus saved you, you know enough. If you're a Christian, you can share how Jesus changed your life and how he can change their life too. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker and every Christian is to expect opposition. A peacemaker will be persecuted. And it will be worth it. It'll be worth it. Why? Well, that's our third point this morning. Persecution is a cause for rejoicing. Point number three, persecution is a cause for rejoicing. Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. That's a command. This isn't an optional response to persecution. It's not, hey, maybe if you feel like rejoicing, this is a command from Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the world. And it's not just be a little happy. It's to be exceedingly glad. The original language signifies the idea of leaping for joy. It's not speaking of an emotion, though, as, as, as if we feel, feel happy when we're persecuted. It's an attitude, a hard attitude of deep-seated joy at being like Christ and serving him. This is joy to its fullest. Jesus says we rejoice in persecution because our reward is great. It's not that heaven is a reward for suffering, but there is a sense that persecution brings blessing and indicates approval from God. Because we've suffered persecution, won't heaven be especially sweet? I think this is part of what Jesus is getting at here. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In comparison, our sufferings are short and eternity is long. And so we look to the promises of God. These promises are like life preservers that keep us from sinking in times of persecution. A Christian should then be a hoarder of God's promises. We should grab hold of them and we should accumulate more and more of them. Now, we're to hold on to the promise that while we're, we already belong to the kingdom of heaven, we'll receive it in fullness when Jesus comes back. We're already comforted. We're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but we'll be comforted more fully on the last day. We see God now. We see him through his word and feeling his presence, but then in eternity, we will see him face to face. This is why in the book of Hebrews, the men and women of faith can rejoice when their belongings are plundered and when they're beaten and even killed for their faith. They knew what was to come, They knew that what they were getting was incomparable. A place where all things are new, a place with no mourning, no crying, no pain, no evil. A place where there will be no need for peacemakers because all of us will keep peace. No persecution because we'll all love the king. No pain because the effects of sin will be completely reversed. This is why Peter tells us to rejoice in the first Peter passage that the ladies are about to study in their Bible study downstairs. You rejoice now, says Peter, because heaven is coming, and heaven far outweighs anything we could ever experience here on this earth. Heaven is coming. And so we rejoice because our reward is great. But Jesus gives us another example. He says we rejoice in persecution because this is the way the prophets were treated. Oh, the persecuted have to rejoice because we keep company with a whole company of heroes like Elijah and Jeremiah. Our persecution builds up our faith and shows us that we're one of the faithful, that we're one in that line of biblical heroes, that we're truly a Christian. And therefore, we can rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So, Redeemer Church, will it be worth it? Will it be worth giving up our earthly dreams to follow Christ? The Apostle Paul thinks that's a silly question. He writes, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. Redeemer Church, even if we lose everything, even if we lose everything for the sake of following Christ, it will be worth it because we have him now and forever. In Christ, we have all things. Oh, it's true that blessed are the peacemakers For they shall be called sons of God, and blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.
But Father, thank you for giving us a peace which surpasses all understanding. Thank you for sending the ultimate peacemaker. Oh, would Jesus indeed be our delight and our reward? Would we live for him today regardless of the cost? Would we live for him regardless of the suffering we face, regardless of the persecution? Would we make Jesus great by following him to the end? knowing that we will be with him for all eternity. Oh, Father, would you make his name great in this place? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.